0: Going to read and then keep very short my reflections on Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. In a second, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why almost certainly Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are actually one psalm, not two psalms. But let me just set this up for a couple of things. I'll, I'll probably send this in an email to our church um, early this week for the rest of the summer. So I would guess at least six or seven weeks. Every Sunday, we're just going to take an individual psalm, and we're going to work through it. There's going to be no rhyme and reason. It's just going to be random psalms other than that they're ones that I want to preach on. Um, but no no series, no theme. But I mentioned this a few minutes ago. I'm going to try to keep the sermon distinctly shorter during this season as we go through the psalms. And, and there's a couple of reasons. One is that it's just good to balance things out every once in a while and have maybe more time to sing or to pray or to linger in God's presence but it's also true and 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 I've had to learn this lesson very slowly over the years because I am a pretty analytical guy I like reading theology I like thinking about ideas but the psalms are not there for pastors to preach on them they are there for the people of God to pray them and to praise them they are not there for people to expound upon them, they are there for us to emote with and to express our experience back to God. The Psalms belong in your lips towards God, not on my lips towards you. And so I want to keep this time short, and I want us to have more time over the next five, six, seven weeks, whatever it turns out being, to really just, whether it's spend more time singing and lingering in God's presence. Um, some of you, this might make you nervous or, or feel awkward in a few minutes. Um, every week, if you look at your bulletin, we have a time for intercessory prayer at the very end of the service. Here's what I'm going to do today, and I'm really leaning towards, just for the next five or six weeks, is instead of me standing up here, or Augie, or Trevor Agutsama, or somebody else coming up here and praying for you and for the congregation, this is going to become a time where you are given five or six minutes to just, it could be silent, it could be out loud, you could walk around, you could do whatever you want, but to really process and to take, I'm even going to encourage you, take the words of Psalm 42 and 43 and actually spend five or six minutes at the end of this service praying it to God, processing it, I would love for this to be a season where we really just spend time in God's presence responding to him. Um, And so let's go ahead and get in. I might make one or two comments as I read, but then I'm just going to, not going to talk about everything that shows up in Psalm 42 and 43, but I do want to help us to really see the, the beauty and the power of these psalms. Um, Psalm 42 begins like this, and we're going to sing a song in a few minutes that is taken from this first verse. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Two things about this. First, Notice that there are a lot of questions in Psalm 42 and 43. If you go into God's presence and you only make declarative statements, but you don't ask questions, then the Psalms have something to teach us. The Psalms are regularly asking questions. The second thing, and you might have a footnote where it says this, is the image, and we just sang this, that the turn, your face, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look into his wonderful face The imagery of the face is very prominent in Psalm 42 and 43, but it's almost always diluted in English translations. Here, the question is, when shall I come and see the face of God? That's what it says in Hebrew. When shall I come and see the face of God? But instead of that, my tears have been my food day and night. While they, whoever these people are, say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the throng, the crowd. That's you guys, the people of God, all gathered together as a group and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. This person remembers, I used to do that. I used to have that experience, but that's not going on right now. And so for the first of three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, this refrain. Why? Why? Are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? In a few minutes, what we always do, for the most part, right after the sermon, is do the Lord's table. And I'll mention this later, but I'll give you some time to think about it. Jesus quotes that during his ministry, during his life. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He doesn't quote it as a question, but as a statement. And I wonder if you remember where Jesus says this. It's a very important moment. So the psalmist asks himself, not God, but himself, this question. Why are you cast down on my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Here's what our English translations tend to say, my salvation and my God. Here's what it actually says, the salvation of my face and my God. Why am I not seeing the face of God And not seeing the face of God is somehow connected to my face needs saving. God is the salvation of my face. One of the most obvious things about human beings when they are not doing well is you can see it on their face. This psalmist knows that my face does not look the way it should. In a season of sadness, in a season of depression, in a season of stress, in a season of isolation, our faces bear the mark of that. And the psalmist sees... The ability to come into God's presence and see his face as connected to the salvation of his own face. Don't lose that imagery. Don't turn it just into an abstraction like salvation. God is the salvation of my face. It says that three times. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Only thing you need to know about that is that is about as far away as you can get from Jerusalem and the temple in the land of Israel. This guy is really far from where you come into God's presence and worship him. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I feel overwhelmed, I feel like I'm drowning. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Second time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him, the salvation of my face and my God. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust person, deliver me, because you are the God in whom I take refuge. So why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? There's your first sign that this is connected to Psalm 42. That same statement showed up in verse 9 of the previous psalm. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light. Send out your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a lyre, an instrument, musical instrument, O oh God, my God. Final time, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hoping God, for I shall again praise him. My salva- Sorry, the salvation of my face and my God. In addition to that refrain showing up in both psalms, in addition to the language, like, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy all day long, it is also true that if you look at Psalm 42, it begins with a psalm of the sons of Korah, and at the top of Psalm 43, there's no superscription, going all the way back to Psalm 32, And going all the way ahead to Psalm 70, Psalm 43 is the only psalm that doesn't have a superscription above it because it is almost certainly broken up but it was originally part of Psalm 42. So I encourage you, when you read and especially pray these psalms in the future, Psalm 42, if you stop at the end of Psalm 42, you're only praying half the prayer, Psalm 43 is an integral part of this prayer as well. And so I have had an affinity, I I would imagine some of you have as well, I've had an affinity for Psalm 42 for a long time. Something about the imagery of it, um, we're going to actually sing it in a few minutes, but one of my very poignant and I think beautiful memories for me personally of becoming a Christian in college and regularly getting together with other college students on Friday nights or on the weekends to sing praise songs to God and that being a very big part of the early years of my Christian faith is I loved when we would sing that song As the Deer, which we'll sing in a few minutes. I love this psalm. I will point out, and if you didn't notice it already, whether because of that psalm As the Deer, which is very filled with yearning in a beautiful way, which Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, they are filled with yearning, but I want you to notice that Psalm 42 is not a praise psalm. It's a lament. The person who is praying this is depressed. The person who is praying this is disappointed in God. The person who is praying this is trying to get away from the way that they are currently experiencing the world. This is a lament psalm. One of the, I've said it before, I will say it often in the future, one of the most obvious ways that we are a lopsided church in the American church is that almost all of our musical songs are happy songs. And more of the psalms are lament psalms than they are celebrations and praise because they know a lot of life is depression and anxiety and disappointment and anger and experiencing injustice or experiencing shame for your own injustice, your own sin. Um, One of the things that I would suspect for many of us can be a point of disorientation and cognitive dissonance when you walk into a church on Sunday is everybody seems so happy. All the songs we're singing are happy. All the things people talk about are highlights from the week. And then you remember that maybe most of your week was not like that. And you start compartmentalizing. And you start pretending. Or you start pulling away. The Psalms never fail to remind us that so much of life is hard, so much of life is difficult. There is a great line. Um, three weeks ago, some dear friends of mine, Jane and Tim Sang, led a seminar on mental health after the service. I think this, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, are some of the great mental health resources in the Psalms. And one Old Testament scholar puts it this way, and you don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to believe in God to see this. But an Old Testament scholar says, here's what the psalmists always know." Very short formula. I encourage you to memorize it, write it down, whatever it might be. Here it is. Impression without expression leads to depression. Impression without expression leads to depression. The psalmists know that. The psalmists know that you need to not only be aware of what you're feeling, including the sucky stuff, including the hard stuff, including the bad stuff, but you have to express it. There is a very famous line, not at all connected to anything theological, but it applies to so many areas of life by Moliere, where he pointed out very famously, most people in life die of the cure, not of the disease. And what he's pointing out there is that the things that end up ruining us is not the thing itself that it can't be overcome. It's our failure to respond to it rightly or responding to it wrongly that ends up being the actual problem. Here's another thing in my own words that I would say that the psalmists always know. Your experience of the world, your experience overall is never simply what happens to you in your emotions. It is also your response to it. And our response to what we feel, our response to what we encounter, our reaction to, which now includes our agency and our intelligence, is part of our overall experience of the world. And so I want to quote this again, Moliari, most of us die of the cure, not of the disease. Most of us, the main problem is not what has happened, but how we have responded Or how we have failed to respond, that is actually the long term problem. And the Psalms know this. Um, One more thing, and then I'll get into Psalm 42. With the questions, which for years I read, probably like many Western analytical readers of scripture, I read questions in the Psalms for years as kind of like indirect statements. Saying, Why are you downcast on my soul? is the way saying, I'm depressed. And saying, Where is God? or Why have you abandoned me? is saying God isn't being faithful. But I would encourage you to take seriously the grammatical form of the question over a declarative statement. A lot of you know this. It's in uh, the Ted Lasso show, it's all over um, therapeutic culture today. And I think it's a great insight, which is one of the most important things. I'll even put it this way I do a lot of premarital counseling and marital counseling. Helen and I have done counseling in our own marriage and gotten counseling. And one thing every wise counselor would say, is the really significant thing in a friendship or a relationship. It's not conflict. It's not that you're mad at each other. It's not that things are hard. It's how you each respond to it. That's the really interesting thing. And a great principle for responding to difficulty. The things that feel negative is to be curious rather than critical. Now, there's a couple of ways you could be critical once you feel negativity. You could immediately condemn yourself and say, If I was a better Christian, I wouldn't feel sad. If I prayed more, if I was more faithful, I wouldn't feel this crummy. Or you could say, If God was better, if God was more faithful, but He's not, I wouldn't be feeling this. But notice the psalmist doesn't criticize himself or criticize God. He's curious, he probes, he explores, he asks questions. Every single one of us, here's another way I would put it. It's not my insight, but this is in my own words. One of the reasons every culture in the history of the world has rituals for mourning and for grieving and for celebrating and for everything is because every culture in the history of the world knows on some level if you leave people to their own instincts their own intuitive reactions especially the negative stuff we will always end up compounding the problem and making it worse coping mechanisms usually help in the short run but in the long run they Uh, just kill you they shoot you um, just in the face that they just they make your life so miserable um let me get really practical here it is it is all over our culture and i do not want this to be heard as moralistic i want it to be heard as practical and as connected to your flourishing if when you feel sad here are two things i see people do in our culture all the time if you feel sad if you feel stressed if you you feel depressed, if you feel disappointed, if your response is either to turn on a screen and numb yourself or to pull out weed and smoke it or drink alcohol, in the long run, if that's the only way you can cope on a regular basis with the way you feel, in the short run, it absolutely will help you. It'll be better than just feeling crummy. In the long run, man, will this ruin your life. And so the psalmists are curious They explore. They're not passive. They're active. They they ask questions about their experience. They ask questions about what God is up to. Let me read you a quote by J.I. Packer from his famous book, Knowing God. And in a few minutes, when we do intercessory prayer, you will have an opportunity to to do this. When you read the Psalms, they often use the language, not just of prayer and praise, but of meditation, meditation. Of reflection, And some of you maybe think of meditation as like an Eastern philosophy or an Eastern practice, but there's something very, very Christian and Jewish and biblical about meditation. And here's what J.I. Packer says, and I think Psalm 42 is one of the great examples of this in Scripture. J.I. Packer says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God along the way— into a matter for meditation, reflection before God, leading to prayer in praise of God. And then he defines meditation this way. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind, the, uh, calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and the ways, the purposes and the promises of God. Meditation is an activity of holy thought, consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. Its purpose is to clear one's mental and spiritual vision and to let God's truth make its full and proper impact on one's mind and heart. It is a matter of talking to oneself about God, and about oneself, it is indeed often a matter of arguing with yourself, reasoning yourself out of moods of doubt and unbelief and despair into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. I'll send that around later. That is a great definition of what we are to do. I just want to point out one thing that on the one hand, Packer says we do that in God's presence. And so it kind of feels like prayer, but the difference between meditation and prayer is that in, they're both in God's presence. But in prayer, we talk to God. In meditation, we talk back to ourselves. Did you notice? Look at Psalm 42. The refrain that shows up three times. Psalm 42, verse 5. Psalm 42, verse 11. and Psalm 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My, the salvation of my face and my God. Do you notice that that's not a prayer? He's not talking to God, he's talking to himself. He's asking himself questions. He's giving himself commands. Buck up, stop being depressed, hope in God, I'll again praise him. And also asking questions. Why do I feel this way? What is going on here that he's talking to himself in God's presence? He is looking at his own experience, he is looking at his own moods, but he's talking to himself in God's presence and in light of God's purposes. One last quote, and I'm going to end with a couple of just real practical things that Psalm 42 gives us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably about 75 years ago, wrote an entire book on Psalm 42 called Spiritual Depression," And here's what he says about this refrain, where the psalmist is talking to himself and only indirectly to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, Have you realized that a lot of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself more than you are talking to yourself. That much of your unhappiness, misery in life, is because you are passively listening to your experience but not actively talking back to it. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them. You didn't choose them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? You. You're talking to yourself. Now, this man in Psalm 42, his treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking back to himself. Why are you cast down, oh my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, Self, listen for a moment. I'm going to speak now. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to learn to know how to handle yourself. It's to learn to know how to handle yourself. You have to learn how to take yourself in hand. You have to know how to address yourself. Preach to yourself question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business do you have being disquieted like this right now? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, encourage yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, for I will again praise him. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and just passively Just sitting in it, wallowing in it, looking for coping mechanisms to numb it, whatever it might be. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God will do, and what God has pledged himself to do for his people. Then having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy the world, and defy the devil, and defy everything in existence, and say with this man, I shall yet praise God. For the help of his countenance, who is also the salvation of my face and my God. And so here's what I want to end with. And it could be that in a few minutes, after we do the Lord's table, and we have time to respond during a time of prayer, you might begin to do some of this. You might do it later on this week. Here are three things, three diagnostic questions that don't appear directly in the psalm. But the psalmist clearly knows the answers to them. And as I read these, and just say something about each one very briefly, I want to encourage you, we're all different personalities. We all have different backgrounds. We're all wired differently. Each one of you, including me, will be a little stronger, a little better at being able to answer one or two of these questions, and each one of us will be a little weaker at answering another question or two. So I also encourage you to ask, which of these is more natural to me, and which of these do I struggle with more? Here's the first question, and it is a very basic one, but that does not necessarily mean that it's easy. The first question is this, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Notice that in Psalm 42... He can name that specifically. I'm feeling downcast. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling abandoned by God. He knows that he doesn't feel happy, but he also knows that he doesn't feel angry. He doesn't feel stressed. He feels sad. Are you able to look actively at your own experience and name what is going on? And I'll say this. For some of you, um, you are often unaware for long periods of time what exactly you're feeling you have some sense probably of like i don't like the way i'm feeling right now but if somebody asks you what are you feeling it might be difficult at least at certain moments to say here is what i am feeling i'm feeling this come into god's presence on a regular basis and ask yourself why am i downcast but that assumes that you're able to answer what it is that you're feeling and so can you answer the question what am i feeling second question now more complicated Why are you feeling that? One of the things that sociologists and psychologists have shown increasingly over the years and the decades is that human emotions, which for a long time in Western history were often seen as the seat of irrationality, unlike reason, human emotions are incredibly logical. They are always there for a reason. They are communicating something that is Rational that is logical about the way you're experiencing the world. So can you back up and not just name what you are feeling, can you name to yourself why you are feeling it? And here's one of the reasons this is more complicated for most of us. Sometimes the answer is, I haven't eaten in six hours. That's the whole explanation. Sometimes it's because stuff has been going on since I was four years old, and it is still following me around. And that is a much more complicated answer. Sometimes it's because I said something to my spouse or my parent or my kid or something's going on at work and it's been going on for three months. And you have to be able to get under it. If you reread Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 later, the psalmist not only knows what he's feeling, he knows why he's feeling it. I used to be able to come into God's presence and I was surrounded by friends and community and now I'm far from God's face. I am isolated and the only people around me are enemies who are antagonistic towards me. He knows why he feels the way he does. And for some of you, the first question, you'll regularly know the answer to, but the second question, you'll often feel perplexed. I'm not, sometimes your moods will feel like they are completely arbitrary and they rarely actually are. They're worth exploring. And here's the third and final question. And let me just take the lead by saying, I was, as an introspective, introverted, angsty kid, number one has always come pretty naturally to me. I tend to be hyper aware of what I'm feeling to a fault. Number two... I have learned over the years. Very rarely am I feeling something without a somewhat strong sense of why I'm feeling it. This third one, I am so incredibly weak on, which is this. Given what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it, third question, how should I respond to this moment? How should I respond to this situation? I am someone who tends to experience my experience as my fate and my destiny. It's like, well, I feel depressed because I'm just going to lay around all day and feel depressed, whatever it is. And it's just, it's a fate imposed on me from the outside, but it never actually is. You always have agency, not in what you feel necessarily, certainly not in what happens to you, but in how you respond. And so how, given that I'm feeling this, and given that I'm feeling it because of this, how ought I to respond to this? And Psalm 42 and 43 are not an exhaustive answer to how you respond. They're just one example. But they do show that after he diagnoses what he feels, and after he gets insight into why he feels it, he begins to push back and he begins to tell himself, hope in God, don't be depressed. And, and here's the last thing I want to do connected to this third question. How should I respond? Uh, some of you, if you've been around for a while, have heard me say this, but this is the main thing this psalmist does in Psalm 42 and 43 is in the present, which is bleak, which is gray, which is depressing, is he does two things. He remembers the past And he imagines the future. He remembers the past. He remembers moments when he was surrounded by friends and not enemies. He remembers when he saw God's face and it didn't feel like God was far away. He remembers that his experience right now, which there's something about our fallenness as sinners, which works itself out in a million ways. But one of the ways it works out is our experience is so tyrannical. Whatever you're feeling right now presses upon you as if it's the whole truth, the only truth, and so urgent, and the whole story, but it never is. It's just a moment. It's just a season. And so um, Thomas Pynchon, the famous novelist, not a Christian, um, coined a phrase that he called temporal bandwidth. Temporal bandwidth. And he defined it as this in his famous novel, Gravity's Rainbow. Temporal bandwidth is the width the, the strength of your present, your now. The more you are able to dwell in the past and in the future, the thicker your bandwidth right here and now will be, the more solid your persona. But the narrower your sense of now is, that there is no before, there is no after, there's just now, the more tenuous and vulnerable you will be. And so I want you to notice that in Psalm 42 and 43, his responses to what he's feeling and why he's feeling it are to remember. He says several times, remember, 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 and to look forward to God. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me back to your holy hill. Hope in God, I will again praise him. He looks forward to something. And so here is the one very just practical assignment I'm gonna encourage you to do. Do you have memories to draw on? When the present becomes really awful? Do you have things to anticipate and look forward to in the future? And I'll give you specifically, because they're both there in scripture, and I think if you only do one of these, you'll be more vulnerable, is I encourage you, both with memories of the past and anticipation, imagination of the future, to have, I'm going to put it this way, both micro and macro memories memories both micro and macro anticipations. And here's what I mean, that if you have ever read the Psalms or really anything in Scripture, you know that often when we are called to remember the past, we're called to remember that God created the world out of nothing. And he got Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And he raised Jesus from the dead. And he poured out the Spirit at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And you are to remember that that's part of your story In Psalm 42 and 43, there are also personal memories of, remember this season when it seemed like God's presence was everywhere, where I just knew I was cared for in a community of friends? If that has happened to you, and that has happened to every single one of you on some level, you have a bigger picture than just how you feel right now. And I would say the same thing for the future. There should be little hopes that you are looking forward to, but there should also be massive hopes, like being raised from the dead one day, just this and righteousness and grace and mercy and love flowing to every corner of the earth, sin and evil being wiped out, that we should regularly spend time remembering the past and imagining the future. Here's what Dostoevsky said in his notebooks. Reality in its entirety is never to be exhausted by what is immediately at hand for you to experience. Why? Because so much happened before you were even born, And an overwhelming part of reality is contained in the form of a still-to-come future that has not yet arrived. And all of that is reality, as much as right here and now is. And so we remember the past, we imagine the future. There is so much more we could talk about, but what I want you to notice is Psalm 42, and I hope you'll read it and reread in the weeks to come, it gives us so much insight for how to respond to, name and respond to the ups and downs, the hard moods that are there. And so as we go to the Lord's table, I said this at the beginning, let me tell you now, in Mark 14, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has been abandoned by his friends. He has begun to sense that the face of God is turning away from him. And a moment is coming soon in which he will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the middle of Gethsemane, as he is surrounded by his enemies, as he is abandoned by his friends, and as the darkness seeps in, he says, my soul is greatly troubled unto death. And the phrase that he uses there is exactly from Psalm 42, the refrain in verse five, in verse 11, and in Psalm 43, verse five, Jesus went to this psalm at his lowest and at his darkest in order to push back in faith and in hope against a moment, against a situation that otherwise could have overwhelmed him, could have meant despair. And so as we come to the Lord's table, and if you're new with us, what we're going to do in a second is I'm going to encourage you to just come up whenever you want. We really want this time to be open for you to stand, to sit, to walk around, to really just respond to what you've heard today, to what God is saying to you. Um, Here are two ways that you can come to the Lord's table in a way that reflects Psalm 42. The first is this. There is a reason that this is food that you eat and something that you drink. Because central to Psalm 42 is that underneath everything else that has gone wrong is the ability to name God, I am hungry for you. And I am thirsty for your presence. And so when you come, I encourage you to come to these elements explicitly naming what you are most hungry for and what you are most thirsty for. This is a moment where you say, God, I am hungry for your word. I am thirsting for your living presence. And another thing, and we often do this with the Lord's table, but I'll say here, you have lots of different ways you can respond, is the Lord's table is a moment that we both remember that 2,000 years ago, on the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus did this with his disciples, and we remember that Jesus died for us, his body was broken, and his blood was poured out for us. The Lord's table encourages us to look backwards and to remember a past that is different than right now, but the Lord's table also beckons us to look forward, and something that Jesus says in the final night of his life that I think is much less known is he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this with you because I know that I will not eat and drink it again until we are all together in the kingdom someday. And so this also anticipates a greater meal that is coming in the future. And so come to the Lord's table with hunger, with thirst. Come to the Lord's table remembering the past, imagining the future. Let me pray, and then we'll spend just a number of minutes just responding to God's presence.